Thank you. Um, the verse is Colossians 4, 2 through 18, page 573 in your blue Bible. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those with you home uh, if you need one. My wife and I, Trisha, uh, we get to serve in the marriage collective and with young people who are about to get married, taking them through pre-marriage, so it's a good experience. All right, Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open us to a, open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Omsimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is with you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Ephraim, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jack. It's a great job reading that. I'll only correct one or two of the names that you... Other than that. I'll give you an A minus. All right. My name's Josh. I'm the pastor here at Redemption North Mountain. Redemption, as Andrew said earlier, is a broader church uh, collection across the state. We've got 10 total, but we've been praying all week and thinking all week, as you guys have, uh, just about uh, Roe v. Wade and just how to navigate this new world. So uh, I saw a long time ago, there's a documentary on late night uh, talk show hosts, and Jimmy Fallon made the point, I feel like it's our job to help our country process through big events which I don't disagree with, I just don't need Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien being the people that teach me how to think about life. I need God to teach me. So part of a pastor's role is to just help us process these moments. So uh, as I think about Roe v. Wade, the last few days I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about just its story in my life and how only because I'm a Christian is it even on my radar. 
was the first time I heard someone talk about Roe v. Wade. I was, at, I was drinking, not a Christian, partying with some guys, and one guy who was going to go into law, and he wanted to be a lawyer and a judge and all this, made the point, I want to be the Supreme Court justice that overturns Roe v. Wade. And I'm like, who is this guy? Give me another Coors Light, please. And he unpacked why that was his passion. That's the first time I heard somebody passionately speak about this topic, which I had never really thought about. Then it become a Christian, then it becomes to come on my radar, and I start to develop convictions about the unborn and sanctity of life and all this. And a friend of mine uh, in college is choosing to pay for an abortion, and I'm walking him through that just saying, I, please don't, please don't, please don't. And he goes through with it. I love him still, and I, you know, God's grace covers all that. And that's where I personally kind of got acquainted with it. And then like you, it's just everywhere. Uh, and then Saturday, I'm out mowing the lawn, and my wife comes in like, hey, they just made the announcement. So I go inside, and all my boys are sitting there watching, and our third boy says, what is an abortion? And it's my first time like having it with the whole family sit there and talk through this thing that is just being talked about everywhere. So as Christians, we're all kind of interacting with this thing from a different angle. We're all coming from the same Bible, though, and we want to land on convictions that are faithful to God and loving to our neighbor. So how do we as a church sort of view this moment? Because here's what I've been thinking about lately, is we now live in post-Roe v. Wade, which that means a lot of things, but we don't know fully what it's going to mean. As the church, we've always existed best in these moments where we don't fully know what the future is because it makes us trust God in the moment. So how do we navigate this season? Us pastors and leaders just kind of thought of a few things. Here's the first thing we want to do is we want to celebrate the fact that this has been overturned. We want to celebrate all the people in our church who foster and adopt and go into these places, these crisis centers, and they pour into the lives of mothers, soon-to-be mothers, and those who would have been aborted. We want to celebrate the fact that this is now changing. Justice rolls down now. We want to celebrate and applaud and be happy. Now, as a church, we now walk into a world, and even in this room, we now also have to have wisdom, because I know even in this room, like just, I have the same social media as all you guys. I've got all sorts of people on all sorts of sides of everything. Wherever you go, you need to have wisdom. So we as a church want to have wisdom as we walk through this. So the thing that we've been praying about is we don't want to be political, we want to be prophetic and priestly as a church. Prophetic is those who are speaking the truth no matter the cost of themselves. Priestly, those who are standing between God and man, pleading on behalf of God that these men and these women would be reconciled back to God. It's a priestly posture and a prophetic posture. We want to be that. We don't want to just be partisan. We don't want to sound like a Democrat or a Republican. We want to sound like a Christian who votes in whatever camp you vote in. We want to be priestly and prophetic in this moment. And then finally, we want to be really, really wise like really wise i mean even last week we talked about slavery and it's a moment where it's timely to bring it up and in this paul says walk in wisdom towards outsiders in this moment where we're all stepping out in a new reality the christian is told to walk in wisdom toward outsiders so just a few things as i lead this church as a pastor i would encourage us to listen and ask lots of questions wherever you landed don't gloat, don't be rude, don't point fingers, don't mock, don't belittle, don't present their case in the most goofy way possible, but listen and ask good questions about why they are. I just got my hair cut, and I was asking the gal who I love, she's been cutting my hair for a long time, like, what do you think? And her response was opposite of what I think. So I asked more questions, 
Ask more questions, ask more questions. Listen and ask more questions. Lead with an equal value for both woman and the child. This is the church's role. We've been doing it. We're going to keep doing it. We'll do whatever we need to do to step up for women who need help and children who need help in this day and age. And then here's the thing that I was really convicted with. Another pastor wrote this, but do not be ashamed of your convictions. And I'm not ashamed of my convictions, but I spent a lot of my younger years in the faith kind of fighting. And then I chilled out a little and I sort of stuffed and I wanted relationship. And I had to get to this reckoning moment where my convictions matter. Like Jesus never backed down from his convictions. He stepped into every moment full of conviction. He never said sorry for what he believed. And yet he was gracious and truthful and welcoming. He was the greatest human ever. Have your convictions. And I pray that they are lined up with scripture, but don't be ashamed of your conviction. We get to lead now in this moment, church. This is a historic moment. We don't know what it looks like, but those are sort of what we're praying for, just big picture across redemption. So I want to just spend a little bit of time just praying in this moment. So bow your heads, close your eyes. And again, like I said, we're all coming at this from different angles with different stories, different convictions even. But Father, here's what we want as your people. We want to look like you. We want to sound like you. We want to feel like you. We want to listen like you. We want to press into the hard spaces like you did. We want to welcome the marginalized, those who need help. And God, we want to step into these contentious moments, this season of unknown and we want to step into it with truth and grace. So God, as a church, that's a big task for us. It's going to bring us into a lot of spaces where we don't have all the answers and we feel overwhelmed and under-resourced. So God, give us the ability to see our inadequacy quicker so that we'd rely on you and your spirit first and foremost and that we would truly be a spirit-filled, unique people in this day and age. God, thank you for the work that's been done for all these years. Now I think of my friend saying he wanted to be the justice to overturn this. I think of all my friends that are in ministry serving in this area. I think of all the people who work in this field trying to influence and shape policy. God, thank you that you've rewarded their efforts. God, for those that land differently than us, I pray you would give us, even as this text, opportunities to be like Jesus for the people who need it. Lord, we love you. Thank you that you're always here and that we don't have to do this life alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Everyone said, amen. So now we get to close out this book on Colossians. If you're new here, uh, what we do at Redemption generally, whatever redemption you show out, you're going to hear the same message, uh, variety of grades on the preacher depending on where you're at. You're at like a C minus church. So we open up Colossians and we just kind of walk through. Next week, if you come back, we're going to flip over to 1 Samuel and we're going to spend the rest of the year looking at 1 Samuel and looking at these kings of the Old Testament. But here, we've been walking through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this little town, Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, this little startup church. They think maybe 40 people. And he sends this letter. He's in prison. He sends this letter to this church. They've heard the gospel. They've received the gospel. They've been baptized. They're now walking in faith. He sends them this letter. This is what the Christian life looks like. And now they're trying to take this and listen to it and apply what the Christian life looks like. Here's what's just interesting is Paul ends this letter. Here's how he could have ended it. It's at the end, chapter four. He could have redoubled down on here's what's most important. Husbands, love your wives. 
He's covered all this great topic. Wives, children, slaves, slave owners. He does not. Where he ends, chapter 4, is exactly where he started. Thanking God for the mission of the gospel that is still alive and active right now in this moment as he writes this letter. So the way he ends it is, hey, Christians in Colossae, do not forget. I pray that all this wisdom about your marriage and everything takes hold. But I pray you also don't forget that you are sent here on purpose. You are on a mission. My wife and I are going to drive to California after this service, go vacation on the beach. Here's our mentality. Where's the burrito shop? Where's the acai bowls that we want best? End of discussion. That's really it. <laughs> if we're sent there as missionaries, and this church commissions us to go be missionaries to Huntington Beach, our checklist is a lot different. And Paul essentially is saying, hey, just remember, don't forget the checklist of being a missionary. And I think he does it with more uh, nuance and grace than we would have expected. But here's what he's doing. He's just showing us the posture of a missionary. Here's my big idea as I've prayed through this. It's very simple. Christians, whoever you are in this room, remember your missional posture. Remember your missional posture. We got four W's. My wife's like, are you going to stop knock it off with all this alliteration? Maybe, maybe. But here's the four. We're going to be watchful. We're going to be wise, we're going to work with others, and we're going to be waiting, waiting, waiting. The four W's of a missional posture. That's what we want to do as we walk through this. So let's just walk through this and hear the Apostle Paul tell us what we should be thinking about as Christians here. So go to chapter 4, verse 2. We're going to read 2 through 4 here. First one, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. What is the first posture, Paul says, is continue steadfastly in prayer. That continue steadfastly is one word in the Greek. It means do it, do it do it until it becomes a devotional part of your life. Continue steadfastly. Keep doing it. How should you work out? You should work out until it becomes a habit in your life. How should you pray as a Christian? You should pray until it becomes a habit in your life. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue, like if we did a survey, who's really good at prayer, who's not? Like I, most Christians are always like, ah, it's not really my thing. And Paul's not saying, hey, keep being awesome at prayer. He's like, hey, keep pushing in to prayer. The first posture of a missionary is to continue steadfastly. What else does he say? Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That word watchful means awake. Continue praying awake prayers. Not like I'm dozing off here, but like oh, alert, aware, not skittish like a puppy, like a missionary who's watching what God is doing in this world and praying actively, watchful prayers. God, what are you doing? Like even if you think about right now in this country, we, we got the political decision that was made by the Supreme Court, and now we have all sorts of partisan input into this. Christians are not sucked into either camp, whatever camp that is. Christians are watching God at work, and they're praying, continuing step by God, what are you doing in this moment? How do I be a part of that? Continue, steadfast, watching, watching. And then he says, with thanksgiving, with a deep, deep gratitude. I mean, this is fascinating. 
Continue being missionaries. The first posture Paul wants us to remember as he closes off this letter is do not forget that prayer is essential, is key, is foundational to any missionary's journey. I was watching a talk. This was like a decade ago. This guy who worked for Frontiers, which is an international missions agency who spent most of his time in Muslim countries. So he's all an expert on Muhammad. He's studied everything Muhammad's ever written. He is just an ex, like the top expert in Muslim faith and what Muslims believe. And at the time, I was teaching in Tempe, and I had a lot of Muslim refugee students from Somalia and Iraq, and I was just, they're in my classroom all the time. We'd have lunch together, and I'm just chopping it up with them all the time. Here's what I think. What do you think? Here's what I think. What do you think? And I go to this talk. I'm like, yes, he's going to answer all my questions. He's like, if you want to reach a Muslim, if you want to reach a Muslim, you have to do one thing. I'm like, all right, give it to me. You have to pray. That's it. He walks off the stage. Mic drop. My point is, he said, if their eyes are closed, the only thing that lifts the veil over their eyes is prayer. If you want to reach a Muslim, the only thing you can do is pray that God might open their eyes so they might see. So as we think about, think about the house you live in. Think about the job you currently have. Think about the people on the Zoom calls in your work that you're with, or if you actually get to go to an office, old school style, like remember those days, and you sit with real humans. Every person around you, the only thing that's going to bring them to Jesus is praying that God might open their eyes. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then he sort of fleshes out what this prayer should look like. Look at verse 3. He specifically kind of hones in and even asks for prayer for himself. At the same time, as you're praying for your stuff, at the same time, Paul, the master, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, requests prayer. What is he asking prayer for? Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We are to pray that the door might be open that the the mystery of jesus might be declared and we may make it clear like we get things so complicated oftentimes here's what paul says pray that doors might be open for me and for you a door might be open for what for the word logos that the word of god may come into the situation and what happens in that moment he says that i might declare the mystery of jesus what is the mystery of jesus it is the god Holy, righteous creator, Yahweh God of the Old Testament, the Jewish God has come down and he's come close in the person of Jesus. And he has lived among us. He was killed by Romans for our sins on the cross. He was placed in a grave. Third, three days later, he comes out of his own grave, walks around for 40 days, empowers them, and ascends into heaven. Now he reigns and rules victorious. Pray that I might have opportunities for that to come out of my mouth so that people might hear and believe and trust Jesus. That is the only hope this world has. I was reading this Christianity Today magazine. It's talking about the number one evangelism uh, program, I don't know what to call it, that's going on right now. And it's called He Gets Us. Some of you may have seen these commercials, He Gets Us. It's like they said it's more money's been thrown into this evangelism than any other evangelistic tool that's ever done. He Gets Us. And it's all about we live in this broken world where mental health and everyone's just fragile and scared and broken. And their thing is, he, God, gets us. He's come close. And Paul's saying, hey, pray for opportunities for me to speak to people in any situation that I can tell them of the mystery of Jesus. And Paul says that I might be clear in bringing the gospel. 
Are you praying with that sort of precision and purpose for specific names in your work, on your street, in your family, your aunt, your uncle, your sister, your brother, praying for those names that you might have a door open so that you might bring the word and declare the mystery of Jesus with clarity? That is the first posture of a Christian. Now, I'm not going to stand up here like I figured out this prayer thing, but I've been convicted a lot just by the like, precision of Paul. If we're really missionaries, if th this life is still here because there's a mission that's still going forth, the gospel of Jesus Christ has not finished its work here on earth, what are we supposed to be doing in the meantime? We should be praying that we might share that gospel with others. And I ask myself a question to ask you this. If all your prayers were answered tomorrow... Oh, whatever, however you keep track of prayers. What would be different in your home? What would be different in your street? Your workplace? Like, two of my kids would be getting along. I'd have a four-wheel drive truck. And I'd be pretty content. But nothing about what Paul tells me to pray is like the pressing thing on my mind and heart as I think of. And part of its life kicks in, and you're just trying to survive, and you're paying bills, and you're raising kids, and you're doing all the things, and you're just kind of getting, but that's why we have Sunday. We come, and we stop, and we're like, remind me of what's most important. Paul says, pray that a door might be open so that I might declare the mystery of Jesus Christ to those who need to know it. That's our first posture. Second one is this, verse 5 and 6. We want to be wise with outsiders. Let's go to verse 5. Paul says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We want to be wise with outsiders. What could have Paul, let's just put the sentence up there, because I think this is fascinating. Paul could have said a lot of things. So he uses the word outsider as a way to say those not in the faith. So I know that sounds kind of like us and them. But the point is, there are those who have placed their faith in Jesus in this room right now. And they're full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. You are on the inside in this analogy. And Paul says there's also outsiders who have not placed their faith in Jesus yet. What should we do? How should we walk towards them? We could walk in angst, which is a lot of the world we live in. We could walk in truth bombs. We could walk in judgment. We can walk in skepticism, which is sort of when I became a Christian, the first sort of church tribe that I was a part of was like teaching me to be skeptical of every possible person out there that was going to swerve me off into hell somehow. We could be skeptical. Walk in. He didn't say love. Because some of us are lovey-dovey just naturally. You don't have to work at that. That's not me. Some of you in the room. Paul says walk in wisdom. It's just fascinating, especially now. What do we need as Christians in this world? If you list out top 10 things, wisdom, how do I handle this situation? Or just listening to guys talking about their work and HR requirements and all the things that are coming at us, like a million miles an hour. I think of all the kids in this room, all the teenagers, all the junior highs, all the high schools, all the college, all the posts, all the things being thrown out. What do we need? We need wisdom. We need knowledge. We need to know what is good and right and true, but we also need to know what to do with that knowledge. We need wisdom. And Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And then he even unpacks what it looks like. What does that wisdom look like as we talk about this? Here's the first thing we see in this little passage is 
There's a clock ticking. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The first thing, be intentional because the clock is ticking. Your days are numbered, Psalm says. This says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Another testament, new, uh, letter in the New Testament says, walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Wherever you turn in Scripture, it's not giving us an endless blank slate of time on this earth. It's always trying to get us to see the finite reality of our life. Teach me to count my days. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to understand that this, it's been turned over and the sand is dropping. And in this context, Paul wants us to use it missionally. Think about where you live as a gift from God, a very temporary gift from God, so that you could be a good missionary, a good representation of Jesus. Be intentional, making the best use of the time. What's the next thing he says? And let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Again, this is sort of a Christian-y thing that gets, once you get in the church long enough, the salt and light, you start to hear it and not hear it anymore. But you, we still need to hear it because it's one of the main illustrations God gives us for, as the church. We are the salt of the earth. We are the preserving agent in this earth. We are the flavor-bringing agent in this earth. Everything else is bland until you bring Christianity into it to give it salt. And our speech should be gracious, seasoned with salt. I just want you to give you space, like, as you think back on interactions with outsiders, that does not mean worse than you, you're better than them. It simply means outside of the faith. As you go back and recount those interactions, is your speech gracious, seasoned with salt, full of grace and full of salt? Is it, like, flavorful? Is it bringing an aroma to that conversation? If not, confess and say, God, I want to be more like this. And then finally, Paul says this, this is just fascinating, so wise. Season with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul assumes there's a dialogue going on. We need to cultivate dialogue. We don't need to master monologue. He says, you should pray. Doors open, you step in, you bring the gospel. It's gracious and it's salty. And you should know how to answer each person. Like, we have mastered the art of social media blasting our thoughts across the universe. That's the culture we live in. We all know how to share what I think, to heck with what anyone else thinks. Paul says, do you know how to go in with outsiders and listen and understand what they're thinking? And why do you think that way? Why are you so fired up about this? Why do you think that? Why do you? Are we living in a way that we're cultivating dialogue? And what's fascinating, I was thinking about outsiders and other times the Bible talks about outsiders. One of the times it talks about is with elders. So pastor, elder, those that could lead the church, they have to have good character. They got to be Christ-like. They got to be able to teach sound doctrine. And then the other thing it talks about is they got to be well considered by outsiders, meaning they can't be jerks out there, but truth bombers. And they've got to have this dialogue with the world, not just in this church setting. And as I think about our church, like our church is this sweet place. People love to have conversation. If you're not in that loop yet, I, come talk to me. I'll point you to the nicest person I see in this room. But we have a sweet, sweet thing going on. But Paul is not talking about the sweet, sweet thing we have going on. He's talking about when we leave here. Are we representing Christ that we get to experience in our seas, 
and in these moments where these other Christians are filling us up and asking us questions and just being curious. Like curiosity is a spiritual gift that Christians get to bring a world that is not curious. I was just talking to my friend. His daughter went on this trip all over the country. If another family member paid for it, you're going to go see all these great cities across America. And I said, how's it going? She's like, oh, it's really great. She loves all the spots. But she's, she's missing home. I'm like, what about? He's like, well, she says no one really asks her questions about herself. No one's ever prodding. I said, how does that make you feel? He's like, it makes me feel sad, but it also... I'm kind of glad because it's a reminder to her like that curiosity that you enjoy from our home and from our church environment and the people that we get to do life with is not the norm in the world we live in. And Paul's saying, hey, take that curiosity and take it out into the world and cultivate this dialogue with those who don't know Jesus yet. That's what we're here for. A simple tool, it's a tool I've been using for like eight years now as I think about my own missional just purpose on the, is this little map here. If you were part of the launch team, which when we launched a year ago, it's from a book called Art of Neighboring. It's a fantastic book. I'll give you the whole book in two seconds. Your neighbor that you're called to love is not just all the neighbors out there. It's actually the person who lives next door to you. So don't forget that as you go love your Syrian neighbors and your refugee neighbors and your single mom neighbors, all these neighbors. He's like, so often Christians love all the neighbors out there and they forget to love the neighbors that God actually placed them next to. Make sure you're loving them. So he goes on this conference tour and he teaches and he gets the same results no matter what church, whatever Christian environment. He's like, all right, there's your house in the center. I want you to list all the names of the neighbors that are adjacent to you, however it works in your neighborhood. He's like, it's like 40% maybe. He's like, all right, second thing, once you have names, you got... Jareb, Stacy, you got Jacob, Laura, you got whoever. Those are my neighbors. Now give me a fact about them. No, and it's like 10%. And he goes on to, now give me a deep spiritual insight about them. Crickets. Why? Because that takes work. I think more than that, it takes intention to remind ourselves that that is why we're here still. And it's not to get results with them, them, them necessarily, because the results are in God's hand, but it's to be a faithful, missional presence with them. Here's the third question I would ask. Are you aware of some questions that they are asking about life? My next door neighbor, what questions do they have about life? What fears, what hopes, what dreams? Be intentional with creating dialogue. Third thing we see, and this is a long list. I won't read this all again. Jack did a Decent job reading through all these names. But Colossians 4, uh, 7 through 17. So Paul lists all these names. Now he's rounding out the letter. It's coming to a close and he's going to send it off. What is the point here? Paul is just reminding you, hey, we are not mavericks. This is not a solo project. We are not individual Christians shot out to do life. We are the church. We are always in this together. And life is better with a team. And Christianity is really only Christianity when you're doing it as a team, as a family. And Paul just wants us to remember, hey, these are the people that are doing this alongside me, working with other Christians. I just want to go through the list of people. You don't need to look through there because it's just you're going to get lost. And, but the first person is Tychicus. Great name. Tychicus what? Welcome to the world. <laughs> But Tychicus is described, I want you to listen to how Paul describes these people, as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. He's a native of Asia. He's been, a, if you read through the rest of the New Testament, he's brought up a lot, and he's always like a key guy on these crazy missionary trips. So Tychicus, you want to meet him when you get to heaven and ask him about his journeys. Onesimus is called a faithful 
And beloved brother and one of you, meaning one of you Colossians. Onesimus is also a slave. And there's a letter in the New Testament, Philemon, that's written by Paul to Philemon, Onesimus' slave owner, as a sort of, hey, can you release him? I think he'll be more useful, not under your ownership, but under the ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes out on mission. Onesimus, a slave, is mentioned. Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner. He's in prison. And a fel- I love this language. A fellow worker for the kingdom of God. What great language. Mark, a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. He's cousin of Barnabas. And he's also part of the circumcision party. Jesus, also not Jesus, Jesus, secondary Jesus, who got renamed Justice for obvious reasons. <laughs> fellow workers of the kingdom of God. And Epaphras has mentioned this. He's one of you. He's the reason this church started. He's off. He hears Paul preach the gospel. He receives Jesus. He goes back to his hometown, Colossae. He shares the gospel, shares the gospel. A church grows. And he's the church planner of this church at Colossae. Luke, I love it, is called a beloved physician. You know the doctor, Luke? He wrote Luke and Acts, beloved physician. I also write on behalf of him. And then Demas greets you. And then he brings up Nympha, hosting a house church, another sort of small group that has branched off from here. And then Archippus, Archippus, there's my one mess up, has received a ministry from the Lord. Paul lists all these people. Now, most Christians, I'm including that list, when you get to the list of names, you're like, all right, time to move on. First Thessalonians is going to be better than this. All I want us to think of is two questions as we hear this list. How does Paul describe each of these people? Here's my first question. Do we see people for how they relate to Christ and his mission? Or do we have other categories we're using primarily? Like full disclosure, and this is going to sound bad on me, and it, I, whatever, I guess it is what it is. As I think about people, at a, the core, I have two categories of people. Annoying, not annoying. <laughs> Kevin Hawkins is laughing. He has the same. His annoying bucket is a lot bigger than mine. But it's like, is that person, is that person kind of work to be around? That's a mental check. We all have it. If you're better than me, you... You're lying. And then not annoying is I don't have to do any extra work to be around this person. It's like kind of smooth. And like as I navigate life, if I'm not trying to pursue Jesus and trying to be in the spirit and trying to be what Christ wants me to be, that's by default. Are they work to be around? They're not work to be around. I choose them. Paul, as he describes these people, it's all this family language. It's all this loving language. He calls people brothers in the Lord, faithful brother, beloved brother, beloved physician. As you think about people in North Mountain, those of you that have been around a while, those of you that are starting to get connected or where you're coming from another church, beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord, do you use family language? And do you use this, servant language? Aubrey is a faithful servant in the Lord, a servant of Christ Jesus, a fellow servant, a fellow prisoner, a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. As Paul rounds out this letter, he says, just remember, we are on mission. And don't forget my brother in the Lord, Cody. Don't forget Kevin, the faithful servant who is pursuing. Don't keep it just annoying and not annoying. Those buckets that we all have them. Get rid of those buckets, Christians. Brothers and sisters in the Lord who are beloved, who are on the same mission as you, who may be at a different pace, stumbling behind you or speeding way ahead of you, but they're all going towards the same place you are. And they're wanting others to join. The beloved brothers and sisters who are on mission with us. But I think one thing we could miss if we 
just ended there, skip through that, is there's a lot of tension built into this list already. Like there's people who have the annoying bucket like I do, and they're together on this list. Like already. I mean, just a few people. The first one is Onesimus. He's a slave. He is owned by Philemon. He's probably carrying the letter of Philemon to go and ask for his freedom. And in this church, he's asking for slave and slave owner to exist together. The question is, do we serve in deep ways with people very, very different? Like the church is the place where you should be sitting next to, working alongside, serving alongside people who you would not choose to be with except for the grace of Jesus Christ in your life and in theirs. People very different than you. Here's the other one. This is my favorite one. Mark is brought up. Mark's kind of famous Bible character, but he has this really sort of big moment with Paul that is recorded for us to see and understand. It's out of the book of Acts, but here's what, how Paul talks about what happened with Paul and Mark. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Mark talked about here in Colossians. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them and had not gone on to do the work with them. And there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Paul says, Mark's a wuss. Barnabas says, let's give him a chance. Paul says, I saw him. He's a wuss. He's going to back out again. Barnabas says, like, come on, one more try. Paul says, no. Paul and Barnabas split over this guy, Mark, that Paul just brings up in this letter. My fellow prisoner greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, if you see him, welcome him. As a reminder, the mission of God trumps all of our relational categories we want to bring in this room. Mark the wuss, greet him. <laughs> Give him some Powerade, do whatever, love him well. And you got the circumcision party, which is like the most intense Jewish sect who are becoming Christians. They're the ones that keep bumping up in the New Testament causing all these issues. I think to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, you have to also circumcise. And Paul brings them up multiple times. And this guy from the circumcision party, and this guy, is the way I say, like, there's not this pure, perfect church that existed ever where everybody got along and everybody was seeing things properly. It's always been the circumcision party, the wuss, the Gentile, the slave, the slave owner. Are you serving in this church family with people far different than you? If not, I'd encourage you to pray about getting on mission, not just getting around people that you enjoy being around, but getting on mission alongside whoever God may bring your way. What I love about this list is we could already write this list as a church. We could have wrote this list a year ago. But this is what the church is. Could you write a list right now, a letter, thanking God for the people in this church family who are serving faithfully, fellow brothers and sisters, servants of Christ Jesus, fellow workers of the kingdom of God? Could you write that list? Paul wrote it. Just part of your quiet time at some point. Could you write out a list and thank God for all the people serving alongside you? It's part of being a missionary. We're not mavericks. We are with the Marks of the world and the Barnabas of the world and the Pauls of the world. And then Paul ends with one little sentence which sort of brings the plane down into less victorious landing than we would have wanted. But I think it's how life works. Verse 18, here's how Paul is going to finish out his letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand as a way to say, hey, this is me. Here's his final call for the church. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The missionary life 
We're pursuing victory. We want people to meet Jesus. We want people to come in here and be baptized and lives to be changed. That's what we're pushing for. The reality is that we do it in a world where there is still a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. And Paul says, hey, remember my change. Our final posture as missionaries is we're waiting for ultimate redemption. It's not like victory upon victory upon victory. It's, hey, and remember my change. First service, we had a girl in here who's going through the ringer health-wise with cancer and pain and suffering. And this passage is for her. And it's for us. The missionary life is not success after success. It's remember my chains. In this world, for Christians, we're going to have two sorts of suffering if I had to boil it down. One is pain, which is because God allows us to walk into suffering of a variety of physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. And we're going to have chains. We're going to have prison. We're going to have moments where our faith puts us in moments where we are experiencing pain and suffering in this world simply because I claim Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, remember my chains. Remember that this life is not what it's all cracked up to be. We are waiting for heaven and earth to come back. But for now, remember, it's going to be harder than it should be. And as I've been praying through this and just thinking about this as a church, I think about Hebrews 11, I was talking to Casey Reyes, who leads women's ministry, and she was talking about what she wants to teach uh, in women's, for their women's retreat. She's like, I really just love Hebrews 11 and 12. I'm like, yeah, I do too. I went and was reading it and just in light of this. And if you don't know it, it's like the Hall of Fame of Faith. I just want to read some of these people talked about. First, it gives a, de- a definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old have received their commendation. And then he just goes on this rip. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, and God accepted his gifts. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he would not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him away. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. By faith, Abraham was tested, offered up Isaac, and he too received the promises was an act of offering up his only son. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome. And what more shall I say? Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, all of these through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Stop that book right there and send it. The very next line. Here's what we got to remember. Whether it's living in a post-Roe v. Wade world or living in a work that is antagonistic to faith or living in a family where you are the only believer, is this is also what faith looks like. Then the very next line, but some were tortured, 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, some even chains and some imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom this world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Translation, they were still waiting, just like we are. Part of our life as missionaries is still waiting for ultimate redemption, for the things that ail us, but for the things that ail this world. And that is how Paul ends his letter, and then he finally says, in grace be with you, church at Colossae and church at Redemption North Mountain. This is our calling. We are still on mission. We all forget this. This is why we come here on Sundays to be reminded of our calling. We're here to bring Jesus to this world who desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just reminders of things we know but things that sort of get uh, drowned out and diluted as life fills up, as the pressures of life fill up, as the worries of life fill up, as the joy and blessing and prosperity of life fills up. God, we all lose sight of our role here. We all get comfortable. We all get complacent. We all forget why you still have us here. You have us here because there is still a mission. Your mission has not been completed. Your gospel has not gone forth to all the places and to all the people and to all those who would hear and receive by faith your message, the mystery of Christ. So God, I pray as we leave here, there'd just be a little more juice as we think about why we're placed where we're placed. There'd be a little more intention as we drive back down our streets and drive past homes we've driven past a thousand times. There'd be a little more intention as we head to work on Monday and sit next to and talk with the same people we've been talking with for months and years. God, remind us that the gospel is still going forth and that we get to carry it we get to steward it, and it's our job to bring it to this world. And we don't do it with anxiety or fear. We do it with courage and boldness, knowing that you will do the heavy lifting. We just join you in what you're already doing. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.